Let's take our Bibles, and if you wouldn't turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, as you're uh, turning there in your Bibles, uh, we get a lot of help as a church from uh, the book of Acts. And um, we've been asking ourselves, what is the church supposed to look like in the 21st century? What's supposed to be the activity of the church? And I hope that if we do not know the answer, we would say, well, I'm not sure, but let's go to the Bible. I hope that that would be our answer. And in Acts chapter 6, we've been looking here at uh, the a second internal problem or potential problem within the church. The first one, remember, was Ananias and Sapphira lying and pretending to bring all the money and obviously they were exposed and this speaks as to the seriousness of the church. Now, every time somebody lies, does God doesn't strike them dead, but think about it. It was the first church, the inception of the church. God is making a statement and saying this is important. And here a second potential in Acts chapter 6 is a potential for division. There was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because they felt that their widows were neglected in the daily administration. So let's read this text again. Again, a second potential problem that can arise in the church. The Bible says, Acts 6, verse 1, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. The difference between the Grecians and the Hebrews is not necessarily their... Uh, the culture as much as the language they spoke and where they came from. The Hebrews were those who were in Judea. The Grecians were those who were Jews, but who came from outside of Judea. Okay, Lived what is referred to as the diaspora, where the Jews were scattered around the world, were meeting in their own synagogues around the world, but they would come back for special feasts and occasions in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, when there was people from around the world, Jews who came back, uh, there were Grecians, people who spoke primarily the Greek language. Uh, and uh, the church is made up of both Grecians and Hebrews, and that's where the conflict comes in. Verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and a number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. I would like to bring your attention to verse 3. We've asked ourselves this question since our first message that we started in the book of Acts. 
What does first century Christianity look like? Well, here we get a good look at it in verse 3. Notice, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Notice this expression, look ye out among you. If the apostles today were looking at First State Baptist Church, what would they find? What are they looking for here in Acts chapter 6? Would they find today what they found then? And so I would like to preach a message that I've entitled this morning, Looking Among You. Looking among you. We've asked ourselves, what does the first century church look like? Uh, Not just the leadership, but the people themselves that comprise the church. Uh, What are we looking at? And here we find a wonderful picture, a clear picture of what the first century believers looked like, what this church looked like. Now remember... Acts chapter 6, we dealt first of all, we considered the problem in the church. The problem here was there was a murmuring between uh, of the Grecians against the Hebrews. And what was the murmuring about? The Grecians thought that their widows were neglected in the daily ministrations. As we read in Acts chapter 2 and 3, we find that uh, when there was need in the church, people brought money to the apostles and then distribution was made to those in the church that had need. And so apparently somewhere along the line, whether it was an oversight or whether it was purposefully, we don't know. I think, I tend to believe it was an oversight because of how large the church became so quickly. Uh, You're talking about thousands of people on the day of Pentecost. That's uh, quite a growth. I don't know how we would handle that, but that would be wonderful to see 3,000 people uh, get saved. But here we see the problem is there, there could be division working its way here in the church. Culturally speaking, the Grecians against the Hebrews, they're all Jews, but culturally they've grown up in a different environment. The Hebrews probably thought to themselves, well, we're better Jews because we've remained in Judea while all the other Jews have decided to remain in other countries uh, for whatever reason. And so we can see the potential of a natural division that would arise. And that is true in any church, by the way. How many times have we heard of churches splitting or uh, uh, people being upset and uh, leaving with a, a core group of people? And sometimes it is because of valid reason if the church changes and begins to teach false doctrine. And certainly there are valid reasons, but most of the time it is not valid reasons. Based upon my experience, uh, often churches split on the color of the carpet or uh, maybe the pastor mentioned somebody from the pulpit and not somebody else. And that's how those things happen and it's possible. Do we acknowledge that that's in the flesh? That's that's very possible. And so there's a a problem here in the church. But here is how the apostles see it. We consider the potential of this problem. What's the potential? Well, they said, verse 2, It is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. So here's the potential that the apostles are concerned with. This can take us away from what we ought to be doing 
what should be the, if you would, the priority in the church or the potential is that the apostles would leave the Word of God where they do not give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so that's the potential. And the church must always have as its priority uh, the preaching of the Word, the ministry of the Word. And by the way, we know that that is how spiritual growth happens in all of our lives. So we see the problem, the potential, but then we see the priority. The apostles say in verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The priority of the apostles was twofold. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And they must be found in that order. Prayer first and second the ministry of the Word. Why prayer first? Because those who are engaging in the ministry of the Word uh, must be dependent upon God, uh, must uh, find themselves as unable to do the work of God without Him because Jesus said, I will build my church. And so if we're going to do something for Him, and we must make sure that we're gaining a hold of Him and that we are not doing His work without Him. Now, We're turning here our attention, not only at we saw the problem, we talked about the the priority of ministry, and that is the word, the priority of prayer, and we we never want to see the church step away from giving a priority to the prayer and the preaching of the word, but I want to turn our attention to the rest of the people. The apostles evidently gather all the disciples, a great multitude of them, Uh, a bunch of them. So I I believe they try to gather as many people that were part of the church as they possibly could. The language indicates that in verse 2, they called a multitude of the disciples. That's a lot of people. And um, verse 5, the saying, please, the whole multitude. So if it's a multitude, they didn't take an attendance record. It was probably too great for them. Uh, But yet the people there, the multitude was satisfied with what was said by the apostles Here we identify Acts chapter 6 as being the first deacons of the church who were given themselves to serve in what the Bible refers to as the daily uh, ministration or the daily distribution for the needs of those in the church who had need. But I want us to look, as we look now to not only the church leadership, but now the congregation, what do we see in the congregation? We ask ourselves, okay, first century Christianity ought to be that there is a priority in the ministry of the Word. There's a priority in praying. But what about the congregation? Now, the congregation has already been identified as faithfully praying consistently together as a whole. They were of one accord, of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But here they're looking out for people in the church, men particularly, verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So first of all, as we turn our attention here to the problem at hand and how the apostles are going to solve that problem, first of all, we consider the instruction of the apostles. So we need people to serve. That's what they're saying. We need people uh, to do something that we are unable to do If we do this, we're going to be leaving the ministry of the Word where we should be giving ourselves to prayer. So we're going to find seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this 
business. And so here, I want us to look at the instruction here. What are they looking at? And, and, and please, uh, let, let's ask ourselves here as we come to Acts chapter 6 and, and, and see, wouldn't it be wonderful if, well, we have too many of them. Too many of them that fit this criteria. Honest, good report, full of the Holy Ghost and full of... Is that something that we are all striving for? I hope we are. I hope none of us would say, well, no, I I don't want to be an honest report. I don't want to be full of the Holy Ghost. I I don't want to be full of wisdom. Uh, God forbid that we would uh, say that. So here is the instruction. And I want us to spend some time and asking ourselves, your God pulls the curtain away and says, look at the church. There it is. This is what the people... We found seven men. Now, were there more than seven men? I would venture to say there were. But seven whom they may appoint over this business. We're going to look from then on at Stephen, particularly because the Bible focuses on Stephen and the first uh, martyr of the Christian church. But let's look at the The first criteria is, notice, the men, seven men of honest report. Honest report. Now, the word used here in this expression, honest reports, means, the, the picture is, is someone who gives evidence. It is someone who has a record. It is seen as someone who testifies. That, that's what the word means uh, to be of honest report. So this is referring to an individual who has a good testimony. Uh, this is a person who, whose life bears a good record. And this is a man who is, the Bible says, well reported of among the people. Uh, what is interesting here, honest report, we think about um, uh, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, uh, we think here about this idea of having a good record. It comes uh, from the, 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 the expression, honest report, comes from the root word, which means record. This implication, uh, the implication of this expression means that this is someone who has a good and faithful record. Now, the application is quite wide there. But if you look at the requirements, for example, the pastor of the church and the deacon of the church, it talks about being blameless. Uh, in other words, not only from then that are within the church, but also from those who are without the church. Now, let me pause and say this, that there's nobody perfect. And certainly God knows, and you can ask my wife, that I am not perfect, although I'm striving to be like the Lord. And, and so this is not the idea that someone needs to reach some state of perfection. The apostle Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles, and less and the least than of all the saints. That, that's how Paul viewed himself, but yet he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So there was no pride in the apostle Paul where he walked around and said, Oh yeah, yeah, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's me. But yet at the same time he says, You know my manner of life. You know what I've taught you. You've seen my life. You've interacted with me. You know my behavior. And we ask ourselves here in the church and someone say, Well, uh, Pastor, I just got saved. I'm a new Christian. That's good. Start with a good report and continue in that good and honest report. Develop a good record. 
You say, why? Because God wants to use you. Do you believe that today? That God wants to use you in the life and ministry of the church? I would affirm, yes, absolutely He does. What's the criteria? We must be all found with honest report. There's a second criteria. Not only said honest report, but then he says, full of the Holy Ghost. Now, what does that mean? How can you look for such men that are full of the Holy Ghost? Now, it is clear based upon this verse that there had to be some evidence in a believer's life of someone who was full of the Holy Ghost. If he says this is the criteria, that means that the believer ought to be able to look around and say, okay, well, here's Stephen. He is a man that is full of the Holy Ghost. So there has to be something that is observable in somebody's life where we can say that person is full of the Holy Ghost. Notice he didn't say, look for someone with a flame of fire above their head. Someone full with the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? And how can a believer be full of the Holy Ghost? Well, we must make a distinction, as we see in the book of Acts alone, between a distinction between the receiving of the Holy Ghost and the filling of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Those are two distinct things in the book of Acts. Let's first of all deal with the receiving of the Holy Ghost. When does a person receive the Holy Ghost? Does this happen to every believer? Well, let me uh, proclaim it right off the bat. Yes. The moment that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a possessor. You you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit of God the moment you believe. You say, well, pastor, you have to show us where the Bible says that. Well, I'm glad you said that. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. So Acts chapter 5 here, the chapter before, notice with me in verse 32. Acts 5, verse 32, again, Uh, the religious authorities told Peter, we told you not to teach and preach in this name. In verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our Father raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. So the Holy Spirit of God has been given to them that obey Him. Now what does it mean to obey? Go back to Acts chapter 2. Again, no need to go further than the book of Acts. Notice Acts chapter 2. Go down with me to verse 38. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. The people come and says, what must we do? What is it that we need to do? And uh, Peter says, verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here he's talking here about receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost uh, at uh, when you repent, uh, when you believe. Now, some people say, well, uh, here uh, you're kind of ignoring the baptism. He says, repent and be baptized. And then he says, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. So, does a person need to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Ghost? No. Why? Because of Acts chapter 10. Let's, let's look at it. Go to Acts with me, Acts chapter 10. So, The gospel was first preached in Jerusalem. Jews were mainly get saved. But then as the gospel went out, Gentiles began to be saved. 
And the Jews were perplexed in Acts chapter 10 because they thought of themselves, well, the gift of the Holy Ghost was only to Jews. And then they realized, oh no, it seems like Gentiles also have received the Holy Ghost. And notice with me Acts chapter 10. Let's go down, um, let's look at verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which, uh, which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answer, uh, Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? which have received the Holy Ghost as we have? So you see what Peter says. He says, here's some people, evidently, they've received the Holy Spirit of God. Let's baptize them. Now the charismatic church and the Pentecostal movement teaches that you have to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Ghost. That is a false teaching. You receive the Holy Ghost the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. He moves in. The Bible makes that very clear in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. It teaches us, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. 1 Corinthians uh, 6.19 says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which, uh, uh, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. So, the moment we believe, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, and that happens in the life of every born-again Christian. Why? Because the Bible teaches that those who believe are regenerated. They're born again by the Spirit of God. God regenerates. God changes. He basically regenes us by the power of the Spirit of God. The moment of salvation. So that's the receiving of the Holy Ghost, but yet we also observe in the book of Acts the special manifestation of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, right? There was fire above their heads, they were speaking in unknown tongues, some miracle was taking place, and based upon the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament, he prophesied that that would happen, that men would speak in unknown tongues, and the tongue was specifically given so that the Jews would believe and know that the gospel was true. So the sign gift, if you would, was given for the Jew. But we also read, so there is, if you would, miraculous manifestation, sign gifts that fell on the church, so that God was saying, this is my church, I validate my church by those miraculous manifestations. And by the way, we no longer need those manifestations because the church has already been validated. It doesn't need to be validated again. Now, what about the filling of the Spirit of God? Because you also see that in the book of Acts where men were filled with the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? So, we have already observed a pattern in the book of Acts with regard to the filling of the Holy Ghost. Let's go back to chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, we know the Spirit of God came down on the day of Pentecost. Miraculous things took place. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 2. The Bible says, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So notice here, this is different than the falling of the Holy Ghost upon them. They were filled within. So there's a difference between the Holy Spirit being upon them and the Holy Spirit being within them. But all of the believers, all of them were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 11, 
What were those tongues? Verse 11 tells us. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. He lists about 16 different nations. Some of them have different language. Many of them uh, probably spoke the Greek language. But those Jews who were filled with the Holy Ghost did not speak those other languages. And when they were filled with the Spirit of God, they were speaking in to them unknown tongues, but it was known to those who were hearing. They were hearing it in their own language. What, what a miracle was taking place. But I want to emphasize, what was the filling for? They proclaimed all the wonderful works of God. They were filled to proclaim the works of God. That's the first time we see it in Acts. Go to Acts chapter 4. Let's look at Acts chapter 4. Let's look at uh, verse 7. So in verse 7, um, Peter is standing in the midst of the Sanhedrin council, and they're being threatened. Verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the, of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye receive, uh, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you see what Peter's, Peter is basically presenting Christ? And right before he does that, the Bible says, Peter being filled with the Holy Ghost. So the first time they were filled with the Holy Ghost, they were proclaiming the wonderful works of God. Second time they were filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, we see Peter proclaiming Jesus Christ. Go to verse 31 of chapter 4. Remember, they were told not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter says, you know, he goes back, tells it to the company, says, they told us, and then they pray together. They ask for God to give them boldness to preach the word. And notice what happens, verse 31. And when they had prayed and the place was shaken where they were assembled together, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost to do what? And they spake the word of God with boldness. So why does the filling happen over and over again? What does that mean? Every time they're preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. They're preaching the word. So the filling in the book of Acts again and again is associated with the proclamation of the Word of God. The filling of the Holy Ghost is always connected to service. Now, I, I, this is important because there's misunderstanding today about what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. The filling of the Holy Ghost is always connected to some service. In the book of Acts, it is primarily connected to the preaching of the gospel. So I would put it this way. The person who is filled with the Holy Ghost, according to the book of Acts, is the person who submits in obedience to the Spirit to do something that goes against the natural tendency of the flesh. Peter would said, don't teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They beat them and they said, if you do that, there will be consequences. So when Peter goes out the next day and preaches Jesus Christ, he's doing something contrary to the flesh. 
Do you want to go out there and be beat up for preaching Christ? I don't think anybody would say, yeah, I'll volunteer for that. But if someone is yielded and obeying the Spirit of God, he's going to do that. You see, we, we, we have to get rid of our mind this idea that being filled with the Spirit of God is something like, for me, that I do my personal little closet when I do like some weird things. No, no, not at all. The filling of the Spirit of God is always associated with some service where God's people says, I'm going to follow the Spirit of God. I'm going to do what God tells me. And it often goes against my natural tendency. My flesh doesn't want to do it, but I go out. Sometimes people misunderstand. They think that as I go out uh, street, uh, doing street evangelism every week, people sometimes, if you don't, you, you may think that that is what my flesh wants to do. That is not what my flesh wants to do. You know what my flesh wants to do Saturday morning? Rest. Sip on a cup of coffee. Sit in the backyard. Look at the birds chirping. That's what I want to do Saturday morning. But God has called me, the church, to preach the gospel to every creature. Why do we seek the filling of the Spirit of God? For our own benefit? No, I say for the benefit of the work of God. You see, the Bible speaks about being led of the Spirit. That means that we're doing something if we're led of the Spirit. It talks about walking in the Spirit. That means we are walking, doing actively something where God empowers us to do that. This means that the Holy Ghost is leading us to do something that often goes against and is contrary to our flesh. This means that the Holy Ghost often wants us to walk in a direction that goes contrary to our flesh. That's why Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these, the flesh and the Spirit, are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. You know why we don't walk after the Spirit? Because we're walking after the flesh. That's why. So when we're seeing here, when he says, Look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost. What is he talking about? What are we looking for? We're looking for men who say, uh, uh, I don't necessarily want to do this, but I know what God commands me to do. And I know what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do, despite my, what my flesh wants. And by the way, you know what it cost Stephen? His life. But he was filled. It's interesting. Right there, the Bible says he was full of the Holy Ghost. And every time he is mentioned, almost every time he said, filled with the Holy Ghost. Filled with the Holy Ghost. And he became the first martyr of the, of the church. But what was he doing when he was filled with the Holy Ghost, actively serving God? You see, being filled with the Holy Ghost is not some passive thing. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. We receive him the moment we believe. But to be filled, is that means completely yielded, submitted, to the service of God. That's what we're looking for. He doesn't say full of the Holy Ghost. He says full of wisdom. You know, Peter, by the way, he was told by the Jewish authorities to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we find Peter obeying the Holy Ghost and preaching Jesus Christ and not obeying what the Jewish authorities said. He says, remember, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't do anything else. Honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, but also the Bible says full of wisdom. 
Now, we do not need to go very far. And as soon as I saw that, I just went into a Bible search on the word wisdom. And I thought to myself, okay, so let's do this. No, no. We don't need to go very far from this text right here to find out what is wisdom. How is it applied in the life of those who were the first deacons? Notice with me verse 9 and 10 of the same chapter. So Acts 6, verse 9 and 10. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and... Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. There it is. What is wisdom? He says, look ye out among you, seven, by the way, we know here, they were supposed to take part in the daily ministration, right? The distribution to the widows, who obviously some of them had been neglected in the daily ministration, so Stephen has been elected to do just that. But that's not all he does. Why? Because he's filled with the Holy Ghost. And so you don't find just him serving tables, you find him declaring the Lord Jesus Christ. Full of wisdom. How is that evidence in the life of of Stephen? The Bible says that when all the people were debating in verse 9, the Libertines, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and uh, uh, them who were of Cilicia of Asia. This is different kind of groups, different sects. They're all have, always having debates. Stephen shows up and they're trying to debate him. Probably around the subject of the resurrection, that is most likely, where most of the debate took place. But the Bible says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. The word resist means to stand against, to oppose, to withstand. So Stephen is preaching, they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to stand against him. They're trying to resist what he is saying. They're trying to withstand the teaching and the preaching of Stephen. Later we're going to find uh, he was so bold in this preaching that people were cut to the heart. They're so angry their teeth are gnashing. Why did they kill him? Because they couldn't resist him. Why? Because of his wisdom and his and the spirit in which he spake. So the Bible tells us that they were not able to resist. These debaters were not able to successfully oppose the words that Stephen spake. And we ask why. Well, we're going to see later. You look at his sermon. What is the primary mark of Stephen's sermon? It was full of what? Scripture. Just like the preaching of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost full packed with scripture. So I say, what does it mean then to be filled with the Holy Ghost and with wisdom? I say to us, as simply as I can put it, for us to be filled with the scriptures. And so when there's a debate raging, what is the basis wherewith we speak? It must always be the scriptures. So when we're talking about the deacons of the church... These people who are supposed to serve tables, we're not talking about men who don't know the Scriptures. We're talking about quite a high standard. Sometimes we think, well, uh, serving tables, that's just that's not important. Oh, yes, it is important. Anything for God, by the way, is important. 
Whether you clean the church or go out visiting, it's all important to God. But here these men were filled with wisdom. So I ask us here, as we look at the instruction of the apostles, and if the apostles would come today, or let's say we go back then, and the apostles would interact with us day to day, and we'd serve alongside them, and if they say, look you out among you, now I'm talking here specifically to First Day Baptist Church, look you out among you, Seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? If it was not difficult in the first century, it should not be difficult in the 21st century. And so may the Lord help us. That's the instruction of the apostles. Secondly, and my last two points are brief, so don't worry about it. I'm not saying you're worrying about it. I'm just, we're almost done. That's the point. But I want us to notice, secondly, not only do we see the instruction, but then we see, secondly, the increase of the Word of God. Notice verse 7. What happens? <clears throat> so they name in verse 5 the men they chose that were full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, uh, Stephen as well. Uh, they came before the apostles. They prayed, laid their hands on them. Verse 7. By the way, a good thing that we know that this is service is that every time you see someone laying hands on is to do something. You don't just lay your hands on, uh, whether you call it ordination, it's, that means to send out to do something. That's what they did in the first missionary journey of the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. They lay their hands on them and they send them out. So here they ordained them, if you were to lay their hands on them, for them to do something specifically in the church. Verse 7, what is the result of that? What is, we see the increase. The Bible says, and the word of God increased. That's as simple as it gets. The word increase means it grew, it was enlarged, multiplied. It expanded. When they dealt with the problem, notice, what was the potential? To go away from the Word of God. That was the potential in the church. There's not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. That, that was the potential. Let's do something else outside of the Word of God. And the Bible says that when they appointed those men to do that, we know that those men were full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. They were serving the Lord, not just in the daily ministration, but obviously in Stephen we see in preaching and declaring the Word of God. The Word of God increased. That must be, right, the picture or the, the activity of First Day Baptist Church. So we ask us, how do we gauge a successful church? I'll tell you how we gauge a successful church, whether the, God of it, the Word of God is increasing or not. That's it. Are, are more people being converted? Are more people learning the truth of God's Word? Is there spiritual growth taking place in the lives of people? Is there an increase in the Word of God? They say we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So it is apparent that at some point the work of 
distribution became so overwhelming that it was taking them away from prayer and the ministry of the Word. But guess what? There was a bunch of other people who could step in and be involved so that the Word of God could increase. So what I'm saying here is that all the ministries of the church are designed to do what? To do this. To increase the Word of God. What is a successful church? It's not a church necessarily that increases in number. Many churches do that. It's a church that increases in the Word of God. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a statement that says, a church is successful by its number. No, a church is successful by its likeness to Jesus Christ. You don't determine the worthiness and the success of a church by its size You determine the sex of a church by its sort. What kind of church is it? The kind that we find here in Acts chapter 6. And lastly, I told you that point would be short. The instruction of the apostles, the increase of the word of God, but thirdly, the impact of the preaching. I have, I'll be honest, I've read the book of Acts many times, but... Something just stood out to me as I was studying. Notice with me verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Like, where did that come from? (laughs) I've never seen that as I read the Acts chapters. I just never thought about those priests. Who are they? Well, wait a minute. We we saw them back in Acts chapter 4. You remember? Go back to Acts chapter 4. Well, what about those? Who are those priests here that are a great multi, a great number of them? Who are these people? Well, remember Acts four, verse one. And as they spake, that's the they is the apostles unto the people, the priests. That's the priest of the temple, and the captain of the temple. That means the 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 man who was in charge of keeping order in the temple. And the Sadducees came upon them. So who's involved in coming upon them? The priests. Being grieved. Who was grieved? The priests. They were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid their hands on them. The priests laid their hands on Peter, the apostles, and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide, howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So here's the picture, if we remember about the priests in Acts chapter 4. Peter is preaching, perhaps other of the apostles are there, and they're preaching the word of God, and priests are like, stop, (laughs) stop preaching. They take a hold of them, and they bring them to the hole to be put into prison, and the Bible says right after this whole thing, many of them believed. Who? The priest. He just mentioned the priests. You know what that means? That the moment the priests lay their hands on Peter, John, brought them to prison, I believe along the way, Peter probably witnessed to them and preached (laughs) Jesus Christ. They were converted. By the time we go to Acts chapter 6, the Bible says the word of God is so increasing that a great, verse 7, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. That is the impact of the preaching of the Word of God, the result of the increase of the Word of God. What's the result of that? 
Here is a bunch of men who have been religiously involved in the practice of the temple, whether it's burning the incense, offering the sacrifices, doing all the ritualistic things every single day. When Peter and John come in the temple, they are revolting against them. They are putting them in prison. These are probably the same crowd when they were asked whether Jesus Christ should be released over Barabbas. They're probably the same type of people that said, crucify him, crucify him. They revile the Lord Jesus Christ. They try to rid themselves of Jesus Christ. They couldn't stand hearing the name of Jesus Christ. But as the word of God is preached again and again and again and again, eventually these same priests were converted. That is the miracle of the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Can you tell me if they did anything else but preach and teach here? Pastor, what they did is they had a tent and they put a stage. They completely darkened the auditorium. They had lights and they had like smoke coming out of the ground. I know we laugh, but isn't it pathetic what Christianity has come to? So may the Lord help us. Looking among you. And maybe perhaps what we should do is not look around, but maybe we should look within all of our hearts and say, Lord, would you help me to be like one of those men? Maybe I don't have a position of leadership in the church as far as teaching and preaching, but you, would you help me to be as one of those men to have an honest report to be full of the Holy Ghost and full of wisdom. And if you desire those three things, you know what's going to happen at First Day Baptist Church? The Word of God is going to increase. You know what's going to happen? Unlikely people are going to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Not because of us, but because of the power of God's Word. Amen? May we be as the first century church. And so may the Lord help us. Would you praise? I pray.